Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about empowering couples with the knowledge they need to get pregnant, stay pregnant, and have the healthiest baby possible. I'm Kristen Cornett, a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and owner of an online fertility practice called Tiny Feet. I work with women and couples all over the world to optimize their health and fertility so they can build the families they've always dreamed of. You can learn more about me on my website at tinyfeet.co. Thanks so much for tuning in with me today. Before we get started, I just wanna share a couple of awesome free resources that can help you move forward on your journey. First is the free, Are You Healthy Enough to Get Pregnant quiz that will ask you about symptoms in five areas of health that are foundational to fertility and provide you with some practical tips on how to get started addressing each area. Next is the free mini course on how to choose the best prenatal supplements, which walks you through the specific nutrients you need to support your fertility and a healthy pregnancy, and how to find high quality supplements to meet your needs. And lastly, if you're wanting more individualized advice for where to go next on your journey, or you're thinking that you'd like to work with someone one-on-one, you can go ahead and schedule a free 20-minute phone consult with me. You can find links to all three of these resources through the link in this week's episode description. You're listening to episode 79, and today I'm interviewing Ayurvedic practitioner Heather Grish about how Ayurveda can help us understand our bodies and our fertility from a more Eastern medicine perspective. I know there are a lot of people out there who really resonate with the Eastern approach to health, and although I don't have much experience in this area myself, I really wanted to bring someone on that could share more about it with those who are interested. Heather just wrote a book that came out earlier this month, May 2020, called The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility, and I have to say I found it to be a fascinating read. Some of the topics and symptom categorizations in the book were really spot on for me, and it was fun to look at issues that I've always analyzed through a functional medicine lens from an Eastern point of view, and one that existed long before our modern scientific understanding of medicine and health. I'm definitely of the mindset that most modalities of medicine have something unique and helpful to offer and that different things are going to resonate more with different people. So in this episode, you're going to learn what Ayurveda is and how it approaches health and fertility, the dosha system of evaluating body types and categorizing health imbalances in Ayurveda, how our mindsets around our menstrual cycles and reproductive systems impact fertility, the four fertility factors in Ayurveda and how these impact our ability to conceive, our intellectual mind versus our primal mind and why we need to find balance between the two. And you'll also learn more about Heather's book, The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility, and how you can use that book and what to expect from it. All right, so I'm gonna introduce you to Heather and we'll get started. Heather Grish is the author of The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility. She's a board certified Ayurvedic practitioner and she bridges the worlds of conventional and alternative medicine to help women and men heal their physical and emotional lives. Heather is on the board of directors for the National Ayurvedic Medical Association and has consulted with doctors, governments, and insurance companies. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and you can visit Heather online at heathergrish.com, and you'll find links to her website, book, and social media in the show notes for this episode, which you can access through the link in the episode description. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Heather and learn more about Ayurveda. All right. Welcome, Heather Grish. Thank you so much for joining me today on Mastering Your Fertility. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. 
Yes, this is a new one for the podcast. Uh, you know, some people might not have heard of this topic before. We're going to be talking about Ayurveda for fertility and really for general health because general health is fertility to a large degree. So for those listeners that are not familiar with this modality of medicine, can you ex start out by explaining what Ayurveda is and kind of what the general approach is to health and kind of where all of this initiated? Yeah, totally. Um, I totally understand a person who hasn't heard of it because I didn't, I don't think I heard about it until I was in my thirties. Uh, so I totally get it. Uh, but Ayurveda is, uh, it's a holistic lifestyle medicine and system of self-care. It's, it's sort of, um, it's from India and it's kind of like how you have Chinese medicine from China and you have, you know, different types of indigenous medicine. So Chinese medicine got to be known as acupuncture, right? Yeah. Well, this is the form of medicine that came from India, Ayurveda. So it actually literally means the knowledge of life. And it was the medical system that they had there in India before the British settled there. It was, one of their, it was actually their biggest indigenous medical system. And what happened is because we here in the West love yoga, and I say the West, I mean not India, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we, we love yoga. I mean, there's millions of people doing yoga in the US now, probably a lot of your listeners. And that's how I got introduced to it, to Ayurveda was I was a yoga teacher and I was um, doing yoga teacher trainings. And some, somebody came in one day to teach an intro class on this. And I said, what the heck is that? That makes total sense. Why doesn't anybody know what it is? Uh, so what it, it does is it sort of teaches that there are basic energies that are found in our bodies and found in the environment around us. So in the foods that we eat, in the sounds that we hear, uh, in the, you know, the tastes, the smells, everything that's coming in contact with our senses, that there are these qualities that we're taking in all the time. And our internal environment is shifting in response to these qualities on the outside. So what we're looking to do is actually to work on the emotional, environmental, and the behavioral aspects of health. Uh, it's kind of like learning how to garden. So Ayurveda is basically like, if you were to think about yourself as a plant, you know, certain plants like to live in certain kinds of environments. You've yeah, got to talk about fertile soil a lot in fertility. Exactly. So Plants will succeed in certain, certain plants will succeed in certain kind of environments and not in others. So Ayurveda is kind of looking at yourself like you're that plant, learning what environments you need to grow and thrive in because you have sort of a nature about you. And I think modern medicine talks about it in terms of the genome and things like that. So we, we have a, sort of a, a paradigm for understanding this as well that's a little bit easier because if you want to understand all the genes you have to like know all these details to be able to like figure something out and map it out but the way that it's done in ayurveda it's a little bit more intuitive it's a little more high level you could say not quite a cliff's notes version <laughs> because it's more of like a, a a principle or high level principles that everything is based on rather than like these details that you have to memorize and try to make sense of so it's, it can be actually a lot more intuitive for people to understand their health and their emotions. So for example, um, I 
got really into yoga for, you know, in my thirties. And while I was preparing for conception, I was teaching yoga. I was studying yoga. I was teaching yoga teachers and all this stuff. And that was really helpful. Yoga was really helpful for me to learn how to exercise my, my will, get my body in all these shapes and, you know, control, not control my thoughts. Cause you really can't control your thoughts. You just have to learn to live with them and let them go. But so just that awareness of the thoughts with meditation and things like that. But something different happened when I learned about Ayurveda. Um, it made me pay attention to my emotions more and how my emotions felt in my body. So when I get upset, for example, and I want to cry, and I feel that crying get stuck in my throat, right? We can all feel that. You probably have the memory of it right now. When that happens, there's a physiological thing happening, even though it was an emotional response to a thought you know, that we had, there is a physiological response happening. And there's fluids moving, there are muscles contracting, there's all kinds of things that are happening that if you don't let the tears out and it gets stuck in that throat, you're actually blocking that flow. You're blocking that, that urge. And crying, for example, is one of the natural urges in the Ayurvedic texts. So the Ayurvedic texts, they're written as early as 600 BC. They're essentially medical texts that are written in poems. It's the most amazing thing. So sweet but it talks about how you're not supposed to hold in your sneezes and you're not supposed to hold in your cries or when you have to pee or whatever, you know, or yawn, things that are just natural biological things that you don't try to control those, you just let them flow because when your mind comes in and says, when your mind comes in and says, oh, it's not okay for you to cry right now. It's not, you know, they're gonna think you're, you know, too emotional or, you know, you don't want to make them cry or you're trying to look tough or whatever the reason is, but you're actually hurting yourself because that emotion needed to come out. And that's why that started like that. So what in Ayurveda, what we do is you can see that there's, there is a connection between your thoughts, your emotions and your physiological responses. And we're mapping those out so that you can understand them and get a healthier flow in your body. Um, you know, the way that we do it, like I said, it's an ancient form of medicine. People who are familiar with, you know, Chinese medicine, they know that they use something called the five elements. So it's kind of like a easy way of saying the periodic table of elements, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, you know, in 600 BC, they didn't know that you know, helium was a thing, or no one had named helium a thing yet, but they knew that there was space, you know, they knew, which we all have a little bit of a lack of right now because we're all stuck in our homes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's getting old. Yeah, and they knew that the air blew outside and that that caused movement. So when you see the trees move outside, you know that there's air blowing them, but you can't see the wind, you can't see the air, you just see what it's blowing. And they knew that there was fire, and that's what you know allowed us to 
get big brains and develop, you know, advanced societies and things like that because we could cook our food and things, right? And they knew that there was uh, water and they knew that there was earth. They knew that there was the ground outside, the trees and all the sort of tangible physical substances that we deal with. Our bodies are earth, all these things. So that's how they, it's a little different than the Chinese system for anybody, any of your listeners who are familiar with the Chinese elements, it's slightly different. And I think the biggest difference is that it recognizes that there are these intangible things that are really things. So space, you can't put your hand on it, you can't touch it. I mean, you can, but it doesn't feel like anything when you reach out for it, but it's still there. And wind is still blowing outside and you can hear it. You can hear what it's blowing. You can see what it's blowing, but you can't hear the wind or see the wind itself. So these really sort of subtle things that are happening all the time that then you see the results of later um, in movement, in a, in a physical form of some sort. So for example, with fertility, you know, there's so much mystery in it, right? There's, everyone's trying to understand, well, when does a person get pregnant? Why does a person get pregnant? Why does a person not get pregnant? Um, is it the body, is it one body? Is it two bodies? Is it the environment that they're in? So all of these factors, and it's difficult, you, you know, you can see the condition that a body is in if you were to take a look inside, right? You can see the condition that the body is in, but it's sometimes harder to understand the processes that are behind and that lead to the condition that the body is in. And that's what we spend a lot of time in Ayurveda trying to do. So most people, when they hear of Ayurveda, they'll hear about it because um, there's a paradigm that we use in evaluating body types. So you may have heard of that yourself. Yep. And each disease in that medical system is actually categorized by people who are more likely to have certain types of imbalances. Mm -hmm. So you'll have, there are three of three sort of main categories of these, we call them doshas. And a dosha means that which can go out of balance. Okay, so you have uh, three different doshas. One is movement and air and space. And when you have too much of it, you have dryness, you have um, tissues that break down and get rough, you know, cracked skin. Like think about your skin in the winter. Mm -hmm. If you are, you know, in the winter, everything's so dry just because it's cold, but then also because you had the wind, the heat, you know, the wind from the heat, whatever heating system you have moving through your house, depending on where you live. Um, so that dryness happens when you have too much of that dosha. And so dryness, you'll get dryness in the body if you eat too many dry foods. You'll get dryness in the body if you run too many marathons. You get dryness in your body when you travel, when you fly in a plane, when you go to Burning Man, to go to the desert. There's all these you know, ways that, you know, your climate that you live in also affects your body. So that first category of imbalances is that, we call it vata dosha, which is this uh, kind of 
it's a degenerative quality when it's in too much, when you have too much of it, but you need it because it's also what animates you like the wind outside. Like you need animation. If you don't have animation, you're kind of just like sleeping or, you know, not awake. So you need that energy. The second dosha, because I said there's three, the second dosha is the one that's associated with inflammation in the body. I know so it well. You know that one, the pitta dosha. <laughs> yes. Well, I was as I was reading through the book and and um, kind of self quizzing myself a little bit on these. I was I was a little bit surprised. I felt like it, it could have been the vata as well, but I, I think I fit a little bit more into this inflammation category in the pitta category. Yeah, and and also depends on the the phase of your life that you're in. So fit, pitta is fire and water elements. And so you would imagine that that's going to go up in a person in a hot, humid summer. You can imagine that that's going to go up in a person in um, a night after they ate a big, oily, spicy meal. You can imagine if someone's eating tons of tomatoes that are really like, you know, high in acid and things like that. Because you can cook it. Meat. Pitta means that which cooks in Sanskrit. So Sanskrit's the language of Ayurveda. It's an ancient language from India. That word pitta means that which cooks. So literally like you can make ceviche with lemon juice or lime juice or whatever is used for ceviche. Pitta is like that. So it's when your fluids of your body get a little acidic and they start to sort of cook you. Hmm. And yeah. And that can happen also from ambition you know, when we work ourselves into the ground, um, being super busy, being angry, you know, it's that fiery, you know, temperament that will tend to sort of get that more. Um, but it can happen to anybody. It's not like you can't have all of these things going on. It's just when you, I think when you're first learning about it, it's easy to just say, oh, I am this, I am that, or I am that. It is easier to learn about it that way. And I think that's why it's taught um, by a lot of people that way. Uh, it's a little more complex though, because you can have like a pitta imbalance in one part of your body and a vata imbalance in another part of your body. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I was reading through, that was probably the two that I would have said that I exhibited characteristics in. And so I was, you know, because some things sounded like, oh yeah, this is me, but oh, this is kind of me too. And so I think it is tempting I think it's tempting for women in fertility to, in general to want to put themselves in a particular box. It's like knowing what is going on is uh, it's very tempting yeah. to move in that direction. It's harder to consider or accept that you might have multiple things going on or multiple different types of imbalances. It's true. I think in general, you know, women going through fertility, but just in general, humans, we're so hardwired in our culture to want to have an answer to something. Mm -hmm. and our brains are so logical. Our brains want to identify the problem and then equals this, this solution is for that one. So this logical connection, we, we really crave that. And it's very um, challenging when there's a little bit of a mystery involved in certain things, which fertility is that way. For, because there's you, your partner, and then there's mother nature. There's, you know, and I'm not into, I'm not an astrologer or anything too woo-woo like that. <laughs> Although I do appreciate those things because I think that they can make you 
break your paradigm of cognition and the way you process things and it sort of opens you up to um kind of the weirder realms of yourself that we don't have access to all the time because we're so smart and we're (laughs) (laughs) we're so intellectual and we want you know we we're so good at getting good grades on tests and things like that you know we really are so good at operating in that um, really tangible realm that, but we know from modern science that 95% of what's going on with our bodies is not happening from our conscious mind. Maybe at some point we, you know, had the smarts to program ourselves to have those, to have certain things, but most of the things are not happening through our conscious minds. Most of the things are happening by things we don't have awareness of. So I think anything that we can do to sort of, one of my teachers used to say, put your brain in a washing machine, <laughs> which, yeah. which is kind of weird um, because the situation that we're in with the pandemic really is that. It's breaking everything that we thought was normal was routine it's breaking all of those things right now and it's making us look at life and say just notice we just have to notice more now not we can't put certain things into boxes right now because everything is all the you know the neural connections are all breaking for everyone all the connectivity is changing so it's it's kind of a natural watching washing machine for our brains. And that means that there's opportunity, especially for people who were maybe not getting the results that they wanted in the past. It's a huge opportunity, I think, for anyone who finds themselves in that category. I know I didn't get to the third dosha, so I want to go back to that. Yes, do that. The third, I have a lot of vata, so I can roll all over the place. Um, So the third dosha is kapha, and kapha is the water and earth elements. And what that means is that your body is more wet and heavy than other bodies. And it may build faster. You may build tissues faster than other people. So, you know, these are kind of loosely correlated with endomorph, ectomorph, and mesomorph, right? You've probably heard of those Mm -hmm. um, body types. And so the, the kapha body will just build more. The pitta person, the vata person, the kapha person could all eat the same food and it will process completely differently and turn into the tissues completely differently in each body. And so kapha people kind of get a rap for ending up with like more, maybe bigger bodies or sturdier bodies of some sort. So they tend to develop muscle more easily, but they also tend to develop fat more easily. Um, and they can be very like wet and heavy. And if you, and that's fine to when it's to the right functional degree for you, right? Because we all need water in our bodies. We all need some heaviness or we're going to feel like we're like flying out into space all the time right so you need some heaviness to it but if you end up getting too much of it then that's when these imbalance conditions would come up like someone who just feels so tired so heavy 
or their system gets slow, their periods get slow, you know, they get them like every 35 days consistently, something like that, right? Their body is cold and damp. And that the cold and damp body is one of those bodies that can essentially start to grow things that aren't supposed to be there, like cysts, tumors, um, polyps, fibroids. Yes, exactly. Anything that's like a growth of some sort, that's extra tissue. Mm -hmm. That's an example of a kapha imbalance. So yeah, you're already making the connections that like, it's very intuitive, but it's just learning the elements. And, And it's really, it's funny. I always tell people, I went to get a master's degree in something that is extremely basic. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess to some degree it is. I mean, the way that I'm kind of understanding this from my experience so far with the book and just chatting with you is it's really about like energetic balance to a large degree. And you have these different types of energies and everybody has these different types of energies within them and they need to be balanced for us to be healthy. And when we start taking in too much energy in one particular area, that can throw us out of balance and then manifest in a particular type of disease or, you know, symptoms or something in the body. Yeah, totally. Exactly. And the way that we as an, so in an Ayurvedic practice, in the practical sense, if you would work with a a practitioner, you'd basically, they would evaluate you and they would evaluate your constitution and say, what doshas are out of balance for this person? And how, what is the strength of the metabolism? Because metabolism is a big thing in what we do. So every imbalance pattern can either be with or without sort of, a metabolic issue with it. And when your metabolism is not regulated in your body, the way that you eat your food actually can impede the way nutrients flow through your body, the way blood moves, the way water moves. So any channel that you have in your body, think about your veins, your fallopian tubes, like any tube or any channel, your digestive tract is a channel, all these little channels that you have. If you get some toxicity in there, then it can actually impede the flow through the channel. So we're looking at what channels are obstructed and why is that channel obstructed and how can we get that unobstructed, strong, resilient, and and, and it really is, it's an art and a science. So we do that through dietary changes, we do that. Yoga is actually a form of therapy. Um, different yoga practices that we use therapeutically. We use a lot of herbs and spices. So it's, you know, even something simple that you have in your kitchen, for example, like black pepper. So if a person who has a lot of kapha, who has a lot of, maybe they're experiencing some cysts or some tumors, or they're just, they they're slow everything's moving slow with them or they put on a little bit of you know girth recently right they could just you know the best thing i love for kapha is fasting but they could also just douse their food in black pepper and if you were to douse your food in black pepper because black pepper is a spice that acts as a medicine like all spices do everything has an effect on your body black pepper will dry your body out and it'll activate your liver and it's heating. 
and it's a lightening substance. So there's some really simple things that can be done um, in the kitchen that we will teach people about with Ayurveda. Um, and also the way you exercise. So for example, Vata people like to move a lot, right? So they're dancing or they're running or they're traveling or they're just moving. There's tons of movement involved. Or they're becoming yoga teachers. Exactly, a lot of yoga teachers. A lot of yoga teachers are vata and pitta. And, you know, so that vata person, what do they need if they're so mobile and they're so, uh, you know, light and airy? You know, vata people tend to be those people you just can't put your finger on because they're just out there. Or you just can't, you can't grab them because they're always moving around. You know, that friend that pops in and says hi once a year and then they start traveling around the world again or something. <laughs> You know, so that they're like butterflies. So how do you, if someone gets too much butterfly energy, how do you help them so they don't spin out of control? You know, so they continue to get their period, right? That's one of the issues there. So if they, you have to nourish them in a way that allows their body to have a little bit more heaviness and a little more um, wetness to it so that it's, you know, more... Um, rooted yeah and then pitta so we'll, we'll you you'll like this part <laughs> so the the pitta person is um typically hard on themselves <laughs> yeah I can yeah i mean seriously i just because i'm launching a book right now i just had a friend who was gonna you know leave me a review on amazon and she she's like i'm so sorry i haven't gotten to this and it hasn't even the time to leave a review hasn't even come yet <laughs> she's like i'm so sorry i let you down and i said you didn't let me down there's nothing to do yet i was like you're being so hard on yourself so pizza people are perfectionists they're utter perfectionists and they're also, you know, really good managerial types, but they're very dynamic as well. So that I, I have a lot of clients that are very good salespeople when they're pizza because there's an energy of persuasion that comes with that heat at which someone who's colder like Vata and, pe and Kapha people tend to be colder. So the, you can't persuade someone as easily when when you're cold it's kind of physics actually when you're hot you can just penetrate someone's energy more and you know you'll also piss people off more sometimes <laughs> but but this is why when i learned about ayurveda i realized that this is why we need all types and this is why you should have a very diverse group of friends because if you just hang out say your pitta and you've got a lot of pitta stuff going on, and you just hang out with all pittas. Everyone's just gonna be pitta, 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 pitta party, and suddenly you're all gonna have acne and like ridiculously heavy periods. And <laughs> sounds kind of volatile too, really. It, it, pitta can be, yeah, it can be. But again, like it's all it, in, in the healthy amounts, it's, it's quite strong and powerful, right? We want all of these things in the right amounts. So Pitta's got to hang out with someone who's a little more chill, a little cooler, you know, just to balance it out. When the Pitta is out of balance, the cool, I mean, so when I, when my Vata and my Kapha go up, I'm like looking for my most 
type A ambitious friends <laughs> or the foods that are the most spicy, I'm looking to get some of that energy because I know that I've turned into a freezing little lizard and I need to get warmed up, <laughs> you yeah. know? I, I married someone that would probably fall into, hmm, trying to think, probably the kapha category if I had to pick one for him. Uh, but it makes a lot of sense, I think, for me. And we do kind of have that sort of, we have a lot of things in common, but we have a little bit of an opposites attract kind of situation going on. So yeah, it makes sense that that yeah, would work so well for me. Yeah. And you can have so many different kinds of combinations. Someone actually asked me once, should you, should you end up with someone who's like you or someone who's different than you? And I'm like, you just need to end up with whoever you have a good dynamic with. That's the bottom line. And you each have to work on getting yourselves in balance. So if you have a tendency to be high pitta, there is a way to be a person who has that sort of natural pitta strength, but without it being an imbalance that injures their body. Because that's the only reason the imbalances matter. The imbalances only matter because they can injure the body, mm -hmm. your body. I mean, selfishly, like if you're angry, you got to figure out how to get it out of you. You can't just let it. And I, I think that these, you know, it's these emotional components that are responsible for autoimmune conditions and things like this. The way that we hold our energy in when we're hurting, when we're uncomfortable and we don't let things release, it, it will actually hurt our own body to not do that. And it's tricky because I mean, I grew up in a house where everybody yelled at each other all the time. So, you know, some people would turn into people who yell all the time from a situation like that. Other people would turn into a person who, you know, never yells. Maybe, what's that? Who never yells. Exactly. Or who, you know, became a writer like me, you know, who, who finds it easier to communicate alone, you know, on paper. Yeah. Right. So everybody has those things that they've, they've learned, but say, say you have that within you and you're harboring it, it's going to hurt you. You've got to figure out a way to get it out, which is why creativity is so important. Some sort of creative outlet. Um, and also, you know, inter whatever sort of relational trainings people do, because it usually has to do with other people when we, when we have a lot of these issues. But it also can get exacerbated by our diet. It can get exacerbated by the climate that we're in. You know, I live in California. Northern California, and in the summer we get droughts yep. every day, right? So what happens? My skin is dry every summer and fall until the rainy season comes, and so it's just really about learning how the the total picture is affecting you. Um, and it's it it sounds a little hard to do, I think, at first. And you think, wait, I gotta, I gotta pay attention to the environment. I gotta pay attention to my body. I gotta pay attention to what I'm eating. I gotta pay attention to the music I'm listening to. I gotta pay attention to my aromatherapy obsession and the things that I'm putting into my body. I have to pay attention to the phase of life I'm in, I'm in right now because those middle ages are generally more fiery ones. So all these things are converging and I got to pay attention to what's going on with my partner and their imbalances and what's going on with them. And it can seem a little overwhelming at first, 
But once you get the hang of it, it actually becomes quite easy. Yeah. I mean, I would think of this as something that would become very intuitive and in a way, I guess, freeing the ability to like understand what's happening on a more intuitive level. There's a lot of value in looking at things in different ways too, you know, having that really sciencey granular view of what's going on in the body and some of the things that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about on the podcast, but I think there is something really empowering about tapping more into that intuition and understanding the body on a much more simple and intuitive level, as opposed to kind of dissecting everything in the beginning, it might feel like that. But I think, you know, what you're sharing here with Ayurveda is just really the ability to, to tap into that energy and start to notice what is working for you, what feels good in your environment, what helps you feel the most balanced and the most healthy. Yeah. And I totally get, and I love that. I love that you brought me on to your podcast because I know that I'm sort of a different animal to <laughs> what you had. And I'm, I, I just think it's awesome. And I do, I, my partner who I have a child with is a biomedical scientist. So he's a PhD in biomedical science. Um, he's so analytical. And when we first got together, I knew how different we were. I mean, I can kind of go analytical. You know, I used to work in a corporate environment years ago, manage a product development market research for a health insurance company. I don't know if I told you that part yet. I don't think so. <laughs> Before I got into Ayurveda. And, you know, so when I met my partner, I knew I was trying to tap into this sort of more um, softer I knew I was trying to tap into a softer part of myself when I met him because I was, you know, in my mid thirties and I'm like, okay, well, I've, I've lived this life a certain way and I don't think it's quite worked exactly the way that I wanted it to. And I want to become a mother now. So I started studying essentially like what femininity meant, you know, what I started trying to connect more with the moon energy rather than the sun energy. So that, that may be kind of a woo-woo way to look at it, but you know, this, this heating energy of doing and achieving or things like that versus the, the cooler energy of being softer and, you know, more emotional and things like that. And I, I felt like I had to constantly ask for permission from him. Can, is it okay for me to just be this way for a while? Because we connected on an intellectual level you know, and, and he had a mother that was very intellectual as well. She was, um, you know, a, a, she had like a master's degree in math or statistics and she's in her eighties now. So, you know, she's a, a certain kind of intellectual woman. And so he was used to interacting with women in that way, very analytically, very reductionist, very, and, and I would feel sometimes when we would talk, like my brain would start to hurt. <laughs> but we you know you have to find enough of the commonality to understand each other and then you have to say there's a whole bunch of things that we're just not going to connect on and that's okay let's just connect on the things that we do connect on and that's really how we found it and so he he actually learned some of ayurveda i mean like i said he's got a phd in biomedical science so when he's when he reads about ayurveda he's like oh it's cute <laughs> you know he kind of thinks it's um simple and it is, but I don't know. I find in my life that I, as I've gotten older, I really appreciate 
the simple so much more. Um, and, you know, even in this pandemic, I've rearranged my life so much to be so simple. I, I don't even feel affected that much in my life because I had simplified it so much. Um, yeah. So again, I, I think it's amazing that you brought me on and to talk about something that's probably pretty weird from your audience for your audience. Maybe not too weird. I, I do. I feel like perspective is really important. And I talk a lot on the podcast about how important it is to take the best of what every modality has to offer. And, you know, we've, dived a little bit into like some of more, the more Eastern modalities, or at least discuss the possibility of that helping on the podcast. So I guess I just yeah. not out of, um, not out of any particular, for any particular reason, but just like haven't gotten a chance to connect with as many um, Eastern medicine practitioners. So I think this is a good opportunity to provide a different perspective that maybe some people on the podcast have kind of didn't know they were missing yet. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy because I got, I tried to get pregnant at two times in my life. So I can speak about my personal experience and I can speak about the experience that, you know, my clients have had, if you like as well. Um, but me personally, I tried to get pregnant when I was 32. I'm in my forties now. And I was peeing on those ovulation strips and I was doing all the things that I thought I had to do, you know, get off the pill, pee on the ovulation strips, check your cervical mucus, blah, 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 do all those things. And Yet, every time we tried to conceive, I felt myself cringe inside and was like, I knew something wasn't right. I didn't have any sort of tangible data that would have told me that, um, other than maybe slightly irregular periods and things like that. Um, and we tried to get pregnant for, say, six months. We ended up getting divorced. So I didn't get a chance to really deep dive into what was going on in, in that situation. But years later, when I tried to get pregnant, you know, which I had my child right before I turned 40. Okay. Years later, I had spent so much time getting to understand my body, like my cycles, really getting to know my cycles, really getting to know how my mind, my emotion, how everything was connected and preparing my life and organizing my life in a way that I knew would be the environment I would be the most happy in and healthy in personally. And understanding how all the foods affected me, understanding how, you know, I could use herbs medicinally, understanding how the weather affected me, all these things. And we got pregnant on the first try. At 39. Exactly. Yeah. Right before I turned four. So it was like just turning 39 when I got pregnant. And those two experiences were really different. And I spent a lot of time before I conceived doing a lot of cleansing and fasting. And that's because my particular situation called for that. That's not necessarily going to be, and I know because you, you study functional nutrition that you're really trying to understand what is appropriate for that body. Yes. Right. 
So for my situation, the way I learned, you know, I learned best was through Ayurveda. It just matched with my thought process and my emotional process the best. But ultimately, it's to understand yourself, whatever it is that you're studying. Okay. And so another person, for example, you know, I've had clients that have gotten pregnant through IVI you know, IUI or IVF as well. And we'll go through a process of preparing their body for that. That is unique for their situation. Um, obviously my book is about getting pregnant naturally, right? But the same things that you would do to prepare yourself to conceive naturally, you need to also do if you're preparing to go the medically assisted route, because it's really about getting your body into the most resilient, receptive state that it can be in. Absolutely. And you know, this is where I, I love the intersection between functional medicine and Ayurveda and some of the other modalities. What I love about this and what's so different from Western medicine is really this look at what are some of these underlying factors? What are these underlying imbalances that are ultimately leading to a state of dis-ease in the body that's affecting fertility? So even though Ayurveda has a different way of looking at it, this, you know, thousands of year old uh, information, yeah. medical texts that we have from that time where we didn't have the granular scientific level of understanding about all of these things to today where we have these different holistic modalities that are really still super science-based, but the, the commonality in all of that is we're looking for those underlying causes of imbalances in the body and looking to correct those. And when we correct those health restores and when we restore health, fertility restores. Totally. Exactly. And it's funny because even the word correct, right? So it's like sometimes people are getting unhealthy because they're correcting too much. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Sometimes people are, um, need to correct more right? Like my, my friend who uh, is hard, so hard on herself, right? Maybe, gosh, how much more could she relax, right? And what would happen if she could relax? And what would that feel like? I bet her body, I bet all her muscles would soften, you know, I bet like her chest would feel better or whatever that, we're all holding tension somewhere in the body, right? So even just scanning your own body right now, you could probably feel there's some tension you're holding somewhere, right? So if we can just let go a little bit, can we let go of that little spot that's being held somewhere? And if we let that go, what changes? You know, and this is one of the reasons that I, I love, I kind of love, I mean, I hate what's going on with the pandemic, but I also kind of love it because also being a person who can be so uh, hard, you know, perfectionist, like, oh, I got to make sure my camera is perfect for the podcast and you can see my painting behind me or, oh my gosh, I hope my kid doesn't run in here and bust yep. in, the, you know, all these things, but you do have to surrender to it because we're all kind of compressed more and we're all going through such radical changes that we all have to be more forgiving with ourselves. Yeah, for sure we do. And I think that that is something in particular with fertility struggles that 
a lot of the women that listen to this podcast, a lot of the women that come to me and work one-on-one, that is that is a life lesson that we need to learn for this particular time. And I kind of want to ask some specific questions around mindset because there were some things in the book that were really, that really caught my attention. Yeah. And you know, one of those things is just like talking about the attitudes and kind of conditioning that we have in this modern world about our menstrual cycles and our female bodies and, and how we're supposed to work and function. I think there's this really big sense of like, shame and just not great feelings about menstruation in general, this like inconvenient thing that we have to go through and we don't respect the like feminine power that that offers us and the ability to like create life from that, this annoying inconvenience that we have or from a societal perspective, this kind of dirty, unfortunate female cycle that we have every month when we think of it that way, when we're conditioned to think of it that way, that can cause a lot of disconnect with our bodies. And it seems like that's kind of a common theme around fertility is this sort of like warring with the body instead of the acceptance of this amazing creative energy that we have. Yeah, we really as women need to create a revolution with this. And I think that it's already starting to happen. So we've got this tape running in our head that was created from whenever we first got our period or from whenever we first started to notice that certain things felt good or whenever we started to sort of develop that relationship with our biological functioning for reproduction and the body parts associated with that. We're young when that happens. We're like 12 or something, right? Maybe even younger for some women and older for others. And that moment in a woman's life when that happens is like this area of opportunity that is so largely untapped and so not managed well in our society. And we're from a very young age, we're set on a path to not appreciate that part of ourselves, like you said, to think it's inconvenient. And then we start getting all these weird beliefs about ourselves, you know, or even, um, you know, this idea of in certain cultures, women being sent away to the red tent or whatever, People talk about that as if it was a punishment to do that. Mm-hmm. And when, when I started studying Ayurveda, I had a teacher who I worked with as a healer of mine for a couple of years. And she, was, she lived in Nepal, in Kathmandu. And she would fly out to the US once a year. And so I met with her. I've met, I've met with her once a year for years. Um, and I wrote about her in my book. Mm-hmm. She, I remember one day she said, when in Nepal, they live in multi-generational families. So they have the mom, the grandma and the kids, you know, grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, and kids all live in the same house together. And when the woman say, probably not the grandma, but when the the mom or the sort of middle-aged woman or young, young adult woman has her cycle, that is the time she actually doesn't have to work on those days. So she doesn't have to work on those days. And in each home, there's a room that's reserved for the women to work on their creative projects. And so on the days where they don't have to go to work because it's their time of the month, they save all their creative projects up for the month and they spend their time working on them instead of their regular work. 
And I just, I mean, I have chills now talking about that because first of all, none of us live in multi-generational environments anymore. We don't structure our lives for a lot of support in general to start a family. Now we have men and women working full-time. So we don't even have a mother available or a father available in many cases to, you know, have any space, holding space for a family. Um, and God, we definitely don't let women take time off when they have their period, you know, and we don't, we certainly don't let them go sit in a room with some flowers and knit or write some poetry or <laughs> whatever other creative endeavor they like to do. That we do not. <laughs> no, we, and I, a couple of years ago, I remember, I can't remember her name, but there was a Chinese, um, she was a Chinese Olympic athlete who was talking about how she had her period when she had to compete and how it was like, an, you know, it caused an issue for her. And it, it's such a struggle for women, right? Because there's so many things that we want to do in the world, but at the same time, we do have, we are different than men. There's a whole other layer of change going on constantly with us that men just don't have to deal with. So all the structures of the world that are set up, the way the world is organized to be so predictable and on a clock and things like that. It's a very masculine way of interacting because it does not currently allow well enough for the level of variation that women are dealing with in their lives Yeah, on a we monthly force basis. Ourselves, we force ourselves to fit into that because that's what we have to do to, I guess, fit into this world that we all exist in. And I think there's definitely a, a feminist aspect to it too, where, you know, we have done so much to try to achieve this level of equality. And we've done that, I think, at the expense of some of the things that really do make us special as women. It's so hard. I know it's, it's so hard because it's, no one wants to have options taken away from them. Yeah. No one wants that. And every time I get into this discussion, you know, I'm a weird sort of feminist because I think that there really are different requirements for women during the fertile years of their lives who decide they want to have children. If you want to take that path, and it is a path because not everybody chooses that path. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, biologically, we're different than men, but we can, we can kind of hang with the boys. You know, I played on the boys soccer team in high school and <laughs> it's like we can hang with the boys, but we are unique during these years and especially during those years when we're concerned with becoming a mother and raising children. Um, you know, I made the decision when I had a child to, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to work full time. And that's actually one of the reasons I got divorced when I was younger, because I was like, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't want that. He was like, no, if we're going to have a family, you're going to work full time. And I was like, what? I don't want to do that. I want to be home with my kid. But at the same time, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to lose whatever thing I felt was my passion or my identity or whatever, because the truth is my child will grow up someday and I will be just me alone again. So you can't let your pat, your personal passions completely go away and like lose yourself and then become completely dependent on your partner and have like nothing to do with yourself or be completely lost when your child goes off to 
high school or college or whatever. So it's quite a challenge. And I do think that it's, it's so unique to the woman. There are some women, they want to be the CEO. They want to be the CEO and they want to work full time. And that maybe their partner is equally as ambitious or maybe their partner stays home. You know, I have a neighbor whose wife was a, was an executive and he stayed home full time with the kids. So every family kind of ends up with a different iteration of what works for them. Yeah. And I think when, when a woman is uh, considering becoming a mother, her first job is to think about, because she is what we call in Ayurveda, you talked about, you know, kind of this field, this soil. And in Ayurveda, we, it's called the four fertility factors. So there's the seed, the season, the field, and the water. And they all have their significance that you study when you're trying to cultivate your fertility. So the field most literally means your uterus because that's where the new life comes in to and implants into that field. The word for field that we use in from Ayurveda, another Sanskrit word I'll throw at you, is kshetra, which that's the word for field. And that word means a place where a person will take a pilgrimage to. So it's sort of like a baby making a pilgrimage into your body as you made a pilgrimage into your mother's body and your mother made a pilgrimage into her mother's body. So everybody's making a pilgrimage here. And you as the person that is saying, Hey, I want to, I want to be a place where somebody wants to make a pilgrimage to. How do you know it's the right place? Right? How do you create that field to be the right environment for that soul if you want to go really woo-woo here, right? Now, I think women can be completely selfish about it because when you're healthy, everybody else around you is going to be healthier. When you're healthy, there's going to be and, and it's particular, like we said, everybody's bodies are different, right? So some person's normal has a little bit less moisture than another person's body. There's this unique recipe that was created. So your mother, when you entered your mother's body, that's because it was, and, and you thrived there because it was the perfect environment for you. I mean, we I mean, and whatever your relationship is with your parents now is your after going through the teenage years and all that is different, right? But in that moment, the, the biology was the perfect environment for that sperm, that egg to come together. And it's not going to be the same for every sperm and every egg. Not they're all slightly different as well. Right? Yeah. So it's, you have to, the only thing that you can control is your, you're in your body. There might be another person in your body with you at some point if you become pregnant, but right now you're the only one in your body and you have to make that just the most wonderful environment for you to be in. And 
it's the art form of that. Not to me, that's what Ayurveda is about. And I think that's hard. That's hard for a lot of people to kind of conceptualize and that idea of selfishness and doing whatever it takes to be as healthy as you possibly can. And we kind of play the short game with that, right? We're like, oh, we need to take care of everybody else and then we'll be last and that's fine. That's just how it is. That's, that's the uh, kind of like the curse of the female energy in my family is like everybody else comes first and you just go, 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 go until you completely burn yourself out. And it's amazing how much better it works out if you do it the opposite way. It's like, put your oxygen mask on first before you help somebody else. If there's an emergency on an airplane, um, But it is really, I think, hard for us to grasp that idea that we need to invest in ourselves in that way and accept that we need to come first in a lot of ways. And some other interesting things that came up as as you were talking for me, I remember reading in the book about the two minds for women. And you talk about the intellectual mind and you talk about, what is it, the primal mind? Yeah. And how those kind of need to be existing in harmony with one another. And I feel like a lot of us that struggle with our fertility struggle with being um, a little too, a little too hot in the intellectual mind category and, and having a really hard time tapping into that primal mind. Can you kind of explain that concept a little bit to listeners and why that's so important and why that's something we need to be taking a look at when we're thinking about fertility? Yeah. So there's, you know, I I look at it, anybody who's familiar with how corporate environments work, you know, you have top-down processes and you have bottom-up processes. And so the bottom-up processes are more organically driven, they're uh, grassroots in nature, they're, you know, they're not mandated authoritative actions, okay? So the top-down is like, commands you have to do this it's time to do this it's like clear but the bottom up ones are always like a little more fuzzy and they like form um so to me it's similar to the way your mind your intellectual mind is the one that you have the memory of the most because it's where all your thoughts are living right so you can pay attention to that part so if anybody is a meditator or just even lays down at night and you you feel and hear all your thoughts in your head, you know, um, that's that you're conscious of that part of yourself. And that's the part that you can try to control things with. That's the part that you can make plans with. That's the part that you can schedule everything with. That's the part that you can, you know, strategize with all these things that make us so super smart. But the primal mind, and the, you know, obviously there's so many more dimensions to the mind, right? Like I, there's the limbic system, there's all the lobes of the brain and all these things. And I sort of grouped all the parts of you that are more animal-like in nature um, rather than, you know, uh, smart and strategic. So like I was talking about earlier, these urges of the body, when you sneeze, when you yawn, when you have to pee, when you um, get the hiccups. So anything that's kind of like a natural urge of the body would be something that exists in the primal space because it's really all the stuff that's like your animal. I mean, if you were to look outside, you know, I have a lot of deer that hang out around my place where I live. 
And so if I look at the deer, the deer's not thinking, or at least we don't know this about deer, right? But the deer's not thinking about like, oh, how am I going to get pregnant? And, you know, like they're not like thinking about, oh, do I need to, you know, eat this food and then blah, blah, whatever. They're not, the deer's not doing that. The deer is like, I'm horny. I'm, go I'm going after that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm assuming that libido is in this primal oh, category as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's everything having to do with the primal. And I don't know. I mean, the intellectual energy can oftentimes even steal some of the sexual energy. I'm not saying that that always happens because it doesn't, but it certainly steals energy from the, the uh, menstrual functioning and it certainly influences the menstrual functioning so any practice that a woman would have to get more in touch with that primal because when there's a conflict between your mind and your body like your mind wants this and your body wants this your body will always win when your body really 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 needs something like it needs a certain nutrient or it doesn't need a certain nutrient and your mind says, oh, I think I need this. You know, your body will always win. So getting in touch with the primal is just getting in touch with the body and all of its natural biological urges. So when you go studying yourself, when you go to the bathroom, looking at what's in the toilet, understanding, oh, what did I eat yesterday? What did that turn into? How did that kind of get processed? Um, in the in the way through and, and in ayurveda we uh, we spend a lot of time talking about bowel movements <laughs> with people because we study uh, we do that in functional medicine yeah that's <laughs> yeah, so the same kind of thing just getting that study of how something came in and how it comes out of you right learning how this animal works and i'm not saying that thoughts don't matter but when it comes to a natural conception, it's really getting back into that animal state. And a lot of women, we, we do it in different ways. I mean, even with yoga, I had gotten so into yoga that even that felt stuck and stiff to me because it was like these poses that were like, and I had to hold them for a long time. And I wanted to dance, you know, I wanted to shake my hips or whatever you do. Um, I wrote in the book about playing with sound um, and it, you know, in a yoga class, you might chant Om or something at the end of class or a teacher might have you chant a song. It's a common thing. And playing with sound is so important and especially being so selfish about how does it feel when I make that sound? You know, have you, are you into yoga? I, I forgot to ask you that. I am not regularly into yoga, okay. but I have been into yoga before. <laughs> yeah. So you've taken a class and then oh, you yeah. probably heard like somebody chant. Yeah. Om Lots at of the end. So, all right. So you chant Om at the end. And as someone, I taught yoga for 10 years and I could kind of get a sense of who in the class was going Om and, and afraid to Om or holding their Om in or trying to make their Om sound like the person next to them. And not really, but I, you know, I did that at first. And then after a while I said, oh, I want this own to feel good. I want to love, I want to love the way it feels as it's coming through all my cells. 
this sort of inside out thing. And so every time I took a yoga class, I'd be like, how can I make this own feel good when I, when it comes out of me, you know, so I don't care about, does my own sound like somebody else's or I'm afraid to be too loud or too quiet or to not have the same pitch as everybody else around me. How, how can I be completely selfish to just love the way that own feels when it's coming out of me? So that was, you know, one of the things that I found helped me. And I did that intuitively because I wrote my book after I had my child and I went back into all the ancient texts. And one of the things that I found was that your, the quality of your voice is an indicator of your fertility. Yeah. And I haven't seen any research on this. I would love to, I haven't seen any modern, you know, biomedical research on it. Right. But I really would love to. And just seeing that in that text made me understand some of the things that were happening to me that I couldn't explain and I couldn't understand at the time. But when I went back, I was like, oh, that's why I was exploring those things. And so I think that this primal thing is being uncomfortable when the world doesn't make sense. Being more comfortable, I'm sorry, being more comfortable when the world doesn't make sense and being sort of intrigued by that. Because in order to allow your life to be different, you have to let go of what's happening now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's powerful and important, I think, for a lot of us to learn. You know, this has been really educational for me and I would love for people to check out the book. So tell us a little bit more about the book. It uh, officially releases on May 5th. Is that right? On May 5th. Perfect. Yep. So this is, this is coming out. Actually, it should be released by the time this episode airs. Uh, So tell listeners more about the book and what they can expect from taking this journey into Ayurveda. Yeah. So the book with the book that I wrote, The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility, is a book that you would read before conceiving a child. So when you're really ready to prepare your body, your mind, I even wrote a chapter on your partner and how you can pay attention to your partner's health and learn some things there. Uh, And also your environment, how to curate your environment for conception during that nesting period and the kinds of rejuvenation that each woman would need before they go into conceiving a child. Because the thing that's, that's unique about Ayurveda is that we're not just concerned about getting a person pregnant. We want to get someone pregnant with the most favorable conditions. Mm -hmm. So it's really about getting you as healthy as possible and your environment as wonderful as possible and clear all the channels of your body and your emotions, everything clear before you conceive. So that's the focus of the book. It's called the Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility and Ayurvedic is A-Y-U-R-V-E-D-I-C, Ayurvedic, I know it's a weird word. And um, you can find it on Amazon you can find it on Barnes and Noble and IndieBound, and you could find me, Heather Grish, uh, at my website, heathergrish.com, and I'll spell my last name for you. It's Heather and then Grish, G-R-Z-Y-C-H.
All right. So we will definitely have links to the website and the book in the show notes for the episode. So if you did not catch that, you can head over to the link in the episode description for this week and find the show notes there, as well as the link to Heather's website and book. And why don't you just give us your closing thoughts? Like what, what do you want people to take away from this episode? What advice do you have for women who might be struggling a little bit on this journey? Yeah, that's a big question, huh? Um, I would say like boiling it down, you, anything that you do to focus on learning how to make yourself so healthy will benefit you. It will benefit your partner. It will benefit your future child. And it will also benefit the planet because we are going to bring in the next generation of people that live here and we want to do it very well. So it's a higher calling. That's Absolutely. what I think. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And you know, we focus on a lot of those things in functional medicine too, from a slightly different perspective, but that goal is the same, you know, healthy mom, healthy partner, healthy baby, healthy next generation. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us and providing a, a new and different perspective on the, the health and fertility conversation. I love my time with you today. Thank you so much.